Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you that we gather and you are here. For you are the one who collects us, takes us as we are, forms us, open our hearts and our minds to you, works in us that which you desire. And so we do say, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. May we be drawn to you. May you work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. It was great to be with the group of people who, were, who came and represented this congregation yesterday when you were officially to the applause of many, although you probably couldn't see them, um, welcomed you as a new mission congregation here in the Diocese of Central Florida. Honestly, I thought it was thrilling. So I kind of come with that sense of excitement, and I also come with a certain sort of soberness because the lessons are sober. Um, there isn't a lot of yippee in the, in the lessons this morning, and a part of me wishes that there was. But at the same time, there's a wonderful realism about this that I think is actually incredibly important for right now. And what it means for these who are being confirmed to affirm, along with the rest of you, your commitment to Jesus in this hour, in this time in our world's history. Because the collect... And each of the lessons has one thread in common, and that is the assumption of conflict. That's the thing that is in every single, behind all of what we're doing. We wouldn't be praying for God to give us peace if we didn't need it. In other words, there's conflict going on, and we need God for you to break in, and you to give us the peace, which of course means a collecting and a bringing together, not just a kind of emotional feeling inside, but a real sense of harmony, of people operating and walking together. Because peace, as it is talked about in the scriptures, is a corporate description, far more, in fact, than it is an individual description. Sure, it is individual, and so at the end when I say, you know, may the peace of God which passes all understanding, I'm praying for God to work that in each one of us. But more importantly, in terms of the scripture, it is a corporate expression of the presence of God. So when we pray for God to grant us, notice the pronoun, it's not me, grant us peace, we're praying for God to come in take a very divided group of people, bring them together in a way that reflects God's intended harmony for them to live together, as it were, in peace. So it's far more than just, God, this is really rough right now, and I need your presence in my life, so I know I'm going to be okay. It, it is that, but that's about that much of it. It's actually the smallest portion of it. So... And a part of what it means to learn how to think biblically, which is really the point. To learn the Bible is not merely the, to be able to quote chapter and verse or to say, oh yeah, I remember where that story comes in the narrative. It has to do with learning how to adapt a very particular way of thinking, a way of thinking 
biblically. That's what Paul means when he says to have the mind of Christ. And so a part of one of the ways that the Bible thinks in a way that's very different from us is that it's corporate. It, there's always an us. Even when, when Paul is writing the people in the various churches and he says you, it's always second person plural. It's not individual. Yes, it does require individual commitments, but what he's talking about more than anything else is a public unified expression of the faith of Jesus. What it means to practice what it means to be a believer in Christ and to do that in a way that actually demonstrates to the rest of the world both how bankrupt that system is and how rich it is that we are coming to discover the glory and the beauty of what it means to be followers of Jesus. And when you understand that that's the playing field, you can understand why the Bible assumes conflict. Because to live that kind of quality of life out, to teach it to your children, to make that the normative practice in your household, and to understand that the ethic of love, as it is laid out in 1 Corinthians 13, really is not so much a kind of an emotional sense of I'm really being cared for right now, so much as it is to a very particular kind of ethic, a way to deal with and treat one another, and even a way to see one another within the sight of God himself, you can understand that that will put you at odds with a world that really wants you to think about how I can get mine, how I can have, get authority over somebody else so I can get what I want. And in fact, so much of even our education is more about mastery, whether it's mastering a subject, learning a certain set of technologies, understanding what, how something works. In other words, mastery is an, as a kind of way to gain power rather than a way of being formed as a human being. Classical liberal education was more committed to formation, teaching you how to think, than it ever was about giving you a certain set of techniques. That's gone. Now we think about education as a tool to help me do something. And yet, here, the way we think about education, meaning Bible study and the books we read and share together, is reflects the old classical model about how, I, how can I be formed by the text? How can it shape my life? How can it shape our lives? So it's not just a question of learning, in essence, what it says so I can quote it, or worse, use it as a weapon against somebody else. Don't you do that? Don't you know the Bible says? Instead, it's a commitment to allow the Holy Spirit to use the word of God to form me in a way that makes me and us together look more like Jesus and less like the technique power-oriented worldview that is shaping literally everybody around us and us too, by the way. So to find a way to come out from under that and to come into this is in fact the task of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And out of that, you learn how to see the world differently, to see people differently. And, and so that the conflict comes from this clash that inevitably happens. That's what's going on in the gospel reading. 
Jesus is describing something very different from what it is that they're assuming to be true. Look, look with me. If you've got your bulletin that has it, we'll look at it for a minute. Jesus is standing in the synagogue. He is back in his hometown. These people knew Jesus when he was a little boy. So when he's standing up there speaking like a rabbinic authority, they're like, oh, no. He's the son of a carpenter. He's not supposed to be a rabbi. See, the assumption was that you would follow, follow in the, father, the trade of your father. So where did he get all this education? Now, why is he talking as if somehow he's a man of spiritual authority? That's not true for carpenters. See, it's challenging an assumption about how people are supposed to be. You follow in the footsteps of your parents. And one of the things that's very clear is that again and again and again, Jesus calls people out of any system that doesn't look like the system that he is committed to developing and sharing and embodying and inviting other people to be able to join, including those kind of patriarchal assumptions about who's, what kind of job you're going to have if you grow up. But that's, that's only the opener. Jesus responds not by smoothing it over, which is what we would want to do because we like to fit in. He actually ups the ante. He says, oh, no, no, there's more to it than that. You're saying, is this not Joseph's son? He said, you will doubt me, quote me the proverb, doctor, cure yourself. In other words, there's something really wrong with this. And you will say, do hear also in your own hometown the things we heard you did in Capernaum. In other words, if you're really this big hotshot, we want to see the evidence. In other words, if you're the miracle worker, we want to see it. And Jesus is like, my job is not to perform for you. And so what he does is he ups the ante even further. I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. In other words, whether you like it or not, you're actually fulfilling the scripture here in the way that you're dealing with me. And he, says, he goes on to say in a way that challenges a kind of racist divide, an assumption about to be Jewish is to be preferential over any other racial group by saying there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and there was a severe famine lit. I, Elijah didn't go to the chosen ones. Instead, where, where did he go? He went to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. In other words, he didn't go to a Jew. In fact, just the opposite. His preferred choice was not to go to the Jewish widows. And then he underlines and gives them a further example of the same thing. There were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha, and yet none of them were cleansed except a Syrian. Are you kidding me? That's why they responded with rage. He was challenging all of the cultural assumptions by which their society was ordered around the patriarchs, of the family set the pace, and the preferred, thank God I was born a Jew assumption was that everybody else was less than. Because Jesus is building a different kind of order. He's building an order uh, where men and women operate in a way that's equal. 
He's building an order where every tribe, tongue, language, people, and nation can come in standing equally in the presence of God. And then no matter what your educational background, no matter your gender, no matter your race, none of that matters in the kingdom. What matters in the kingdom is that you're saying yes to Jesus and you belong to him. And that's what we're committed to doing together. Can you see what he is doing? No wonder to live out this kind of vision, we need the description of love that is given in 1 Corinthians 13. Because my natural preference as a human being is to be with people who are like me, who share my cultural assumptions, who understand my background because they're in it too. Those are easy people to hang out with. Conversation flows well. You don't have to worry about what you're going to talk about next because you have so much in common. It's, it's easy to hang out with people who look and talk and act like you. It's a challenge to build relationships with people with whom you have nothing in common except the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so what happens is, I get thrown into a mix where I learn to love people who are not like me, where I learn to care for people who have very different cultural assumptions than I do, where we, have to, we think about things differently, and therefore mistakes get made. There are gaffes that happen. Oh, I wish he hadn't said that, which was really okay in his culture, but man, it's sure not true in mine. Example, this was funny. We're in England, my family. We have two small children at the time. We have many more now. We have five. But then there were just two. And a four-year-old and an infant. We were invited to have high tea with one of the more socially prominent members of the village where we were staying, because we knew people. And so we're invited to tea, and it's wonderful, and we're having a great time together, and all of that. And, and the wife turns to our youngest son, and I mean, this, it was this huge spread, and she says, would you like some more? And he said, oh, no, thank you. I'm just stuffed. The whole room went dead. Stuffed is a euphemism in England for sexual intercourse. <laughs> it's pretty much the correspondence to our F word. <laughs> and you could see these very proper 65 to 70 plus people doing just like this. Who are these Americans? <laughs> we had no idea. I mean, they were never, ever would have been rude enough to have sort of called out my son. So everybody was nice and we finished up. And then we had friends of ours, younger friends. We were in our 30s at the time. Uh, over for dinner that night. And we said, okay, we need to tell you what happened. So we told them the story, and they're like, no. <laughs> and they just burst out laughing. Well, you can understand that our four-year-old son had no idea what was going on. And our esteem in the eyes of our hosts, I'm sure, went down about three notches because we had not properly trained our children. Now, that's a small example. Think about what it's like for someone who's been raised in a Muslim household to come and live in the United States. Think of what it's like for you or I to move to Pakistan 
and to learn what it is to live as, as a citizen in that country. Those are not extreme examples when you really begin to think about what it means to have been raised in a world system that is based on technique, power, and knowledge to come into the kingdom of God and to be a part of the family of believers where we learn to prefer one another in love, where office never ever somehow shields us from doing the dirty work. I mean, any of us, including me, if the toilets needed to be scrubbed, if it's our job, then we would do it. That would be appalling in almost any other context, where we're learning how to serve one another and care for one another. And out of that, we need Jesus, because he is the one who better than anyone embodies the gift of that kind of servanthood, because, and this is the big secret, that's how he deals with us. He always wishes there were times when we didn't do what we would do, and yet he continues to love us. He always understands our missteps, much less our egregious sins, where we, in great anger, walk away from someone else or use them for our own satisfaction. It's just incredibly painful to him, and yet he sticks with us no matter what. I will never leave you or forsake you. Nothing can take you out of my hand. And that is an, a promise that is this big. So when we say yes to Jesus, he's enfolded us into his arms. He will never let us go. He is committed to literally working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And he is committed to doing that no matter how long it takes, even until we get into eternity itself. Love never fails. Who's that? That's Jesus. So as we come into this time where we're going to be seeing people make commitments and we join with them, it's not a light thing. It's actually a commitment to live your life and to order your life and the lives of your family in a way that is in direct conflict with much of what you will see on television, even in entertainment, or even on the news. It's teaching one another how to think biblically in a way that is contrary to the assumptions of so many. But out of that, entering in, into even a more deeper fellowship with one another and with God himself. And to know that sweet peace that he does pour out upon us. Because no matter who we are or what we do, he loves us so dearly. So beloved, we're going to move into this time where people are presented for confirmation. Think carefully about the things you're going to be saying out of your mouth, because this is what you're committing yourself to. And I look forward to what God is going to continue to do in this congregation as a group of people who are finding a way to express the life of Jesus in Horizons West. Your goal is not to be the best Episcopal church in Central Florida. God help you. That's a relatively low bar. <laughs> Your goal is to express the life of Jesus in your community. And may God give you all that you need to do that. Amen.